everyone. I'm Anand. I'm in uh, Dallas. Hey everyone. This is Audrey coming to you from Austin. Hey everyone. I'm Chinta and I'm coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland. Hi everyone. This is Kiran Deep. I'm in Los Angeles. Hey everyone. My name is Parth and I'm from Dallas. We thought that it would be a good idea to meet to discuss some hot topics. What were some of the topics that we wanted to talk about? So this time we decided it sounds like on how South Asians interface with this issue of discrimination in America. And if there's anything, first of all, that we can do in this country about what's going on here. And if we haven't actually resolved a lot of things that are going on in our country, when I say our country, I mean our people, our diaspora. So that seems to me like a pretty big topic. Even on top of that, like I think mm. the importance of why we should be involved being South Asians would also mm -hmm. be a very important conversation to have. Uh, just in regards to the history and in general, I think it's something that we should be involved in. I don't know if anyone watched Hassan Minaj's uh, Patriot Act video on that. Yeah. Where he mentioned that the only reason brown people are even in America is because of the 1964 act that Martin Luther King Jr. helped pass. And without him, uh, we wouldn't even be here. So the fact that like pe people are either on the side of like, oh, they're rioting, so like we shouldn't be supporting them. <clears throat> or it's like, oh, it doesn't affect us, so we're just not going to say anything about it. Just let it pass over. Right. There's no like in between of like, oh, what's happening is wrong and we should stand up for it. Yeah, I think like it's been a big learning experience for me that I, I didn't really put those two and two together. Like what you're talking about with um, the civil rights movement and the act being passed and that allowing our parents to be here so that we're sitting here in this round table on Zoom together you know, that's something that I hadn't connected to before, that mm -hmm. it's because of our Black brothers and sisters that we're even allowed to be here. And I think that's a really great example of how the history that we're taught isn't that holistic. I guess it's, it's my privilege that I've been able to learn so much about it. Black people fought for the rights of all colored people, including themselves, and it's our turn to help them. They're still fighting, and so we should be too. Yeah, I love that you brought up it's a learning process. Um, I think within the South Asian community, on the topic of Black Lives Matter, it is a huge motion of learning. It's an active process for South Asians, I think, this time around. And I, I mean this time around because this has happened in the past, but why is this movement so much bigger within the South Asian community? To be honest, the first time I even um, read about this story, it was at least two, three days before I noticed that the movement was growing. Right. And then um, Jintan, I bring up that live conversation that you did a lot because it actually affected me quite a bit. And I'm like, this is more serious than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And I personally need to do a lot of learning. And from terminology like POC, people of color, to structural racism, to model minority myth, like what is that? To Juneteenth, you know, mm -hmm. just the simple uh, conversations that needed to be had. And then also, the conversations that we have with our parents and my parents sitting up in a rural town in northern British Columbia asking me, are you okay down there in Los Angeles? I see a lot of protests, like what's happening? Um, there's a pandemic going on. Are you safe? And, you know, the whole narrative behind that is always, why is this happening? I had to do the same thing because my parents are in India. Initially, they asked the same questions like, are you okay? Like, I, I heard that people are rioting over there. And right away like their assumption was like oh people are being violent like but then i had to put it into their perspective like oh what about the riots that happened in india like why did they happen right you know like people people are tired of certain things happening the repetitiveness of it 
and every time it being shunned out of the media or like, oh, people forget. Even now, I mean, the whole Blackout Tuesday happened and after that, the feeds went back to normal. Like, no one's really talking about it anymore. It's very interesting for our parents to be, you know, involved and even like trying to explain to them how the, the severity of all of this that's going on. Because even for us, right? Like empathy is a very powerful emotion, but it's hard to describe how to feel for someone else if you don't feel it yourself. You know what I mean? And so explaining to my parents as to why I feel so, uh, how I empathize for African-Americans, it's more or less like putting it in their head, how would they feel if they saw in the news that there was a South Asian name uh, instead of George Floyd's name? And I remember seeing a meme like that around, like how would you feel or how would they feel if they saw repeatedly South Asian names across the board? It's a huge learning curve for them. And I think it's our duty being either firstborn generation, you know, in US or just people our age have access to all these like different opportunities and avenues to learn to teach our parents as well, to teach them how serious all of this is and why it's important for us to, you know, like you guys mentioned, um, Martin Luther King signing that act in 1964 or 65, allowing our parents to come here. A huge shout out to those educational content creators on Instagram that are taking the time to research these topics. Um, and it's just so easy for us to just press share um, and give our perspective on it. So huge shout out to all those Instagram accounts that are doing that. You're playing a really important role here. Yeah. Even like a couple of weeks ago, I honestly never knew what Juneteenth meant. Like I've never heard of it. And I almost felt afraid to admit that I didn't know what it was. And I feel like there's a slight culture at least in social media, to bash other people for not knowing something and seeing that as ignorance. But I think all of us, I feel like, should do a better job also to not only teach people, but allow people to ask, just like what Mamukti is for mental health, that it's okay to not know something. And, if, and it's also okay to ask questions surrounding how heavy these topics are. Part of that is because, of, you know, if it's not being celebrated widely, then how, how would you know about it, right? Like we know about 4th of July, we know about Thanksgiving because our, our schools are off at that time and because it's marked on our calendars, but it's not always necessarily the case. Kind of like the, the history that we're fed is one version. Um, this kind of falls into that because I honestly, I think I've like heard of Juneteenth before, but like I didn't really know what all it was about um, either. And I think to that and to Kandeep's point about all the content that's out there, this is one big up for social media. Like this is a really great example of how it can be used for good instead of evil because it does allow that education to be out there and to be so accessible. I worry a little bit about how, like over the past couple of weeks since the event with George Floyd, I think we did do a lot of soul searching about the fact that these horrors did happen and that we did when I say we, I mean collectively, we, we perpetrated them in the past and continue to do so in the present. But I, I sometimes worry about the sort of uh, academization of the process of apology. And I think what I worry about is that we'll learn about all these things. Like, I'll tell you, I didn't really know what Juneteenth was either. You know, I learned about that this month. I learned a lot of things this month, right? There's sort of like this reading list that's been shared among people who are into this kind of side of things. And they say, read this, watch this talk to this person, whatever, and, and you're supposed to kind of educate yourself on the history of the people who were oppressed. And I think that's really cool. I think that should happen. But I think what that should not replace is what I think ultimately gets things done, which is when we feel like not they were oppressed, but the feeling that we were oppressed. And when I, when I say that, I mean like we owning 
them as part of us. Like, you know, obviously our struggle won't be theirs, but when we say we know them, they are us so that we don't use the word they anymore. They are us, right? They're us. So we, we struggle and it's, we're not a successful country. We're not the country that lives up to its promise unless it extends to all of us. We say us, not them. Right. And so I always felt like what, what should accompany this education is a sort of uh, refamiliarization with who is in our country. You know, there's sometimes I feel like people are like Parth is saying, like there's a sort of hesitation about asking people questions or talking to people, you know, and I, I find that now I feel like this weird sensation where if I talk to someone who's African-American, I feel like I have less to say than more, you know, and it shouldn't be like that. I, I think the more this person is my friend and I get to know them, I volunteer in their communities where things are actually needed now, not just the slavery that was perpetrated 200 years ago, but now there's deficiencies that we can volunteer and help fix. If we go to their schools, if we go to their communities and help them, and then they become us again, right? So when their kids succeed, that's our kids succeeding. And then until that happens, we won't really fight for them. Every year or two, we'll make like a, a black Instagram square and we'll read a book and we'll say we did our justice. You know, that's not it. That can't be it, right? And the only way that can be true is if, like Parth said, um, and many people have said so far, if we recognize the person who was killed as one of us, it doesn't take their name to be Kar or, you know, Sharma. It just takes that we know them. And we'll know them if we actually get to know them, if we go where they are, you know? In East Texas, where I live, a lot of the population is African-American. I have the blessing that I, I can learn a lot about their lives in their most vulnerable states, right? Whenever they're coming into the psych hospital for like suicide or something like this, right? And then I feel like this real attachment that I've never felt really until this point. And I, I feel okay saying that, that I didn't really understand what it was to have people in my life who are very close to me who are African-American. It was, it was really until now that it took. And I've noticed it changed a lot about the way I see these news events, you know? Um, so I just, I guess I hope that also happens that people feel okay to not cloister into, into a library and study this as much as go out there and live in, in the place where these problems happen and change it. Right. I agree 100%. To piggyback on like all of these things, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of the dialogue is like, yeah, sure. Sitting and learning all these things, which is really great. Now it's, the conversation should be sort of kind of steered towards the future. Like, how are we going to manage all of this, right? So we see things like defunding the police, about the police enforcement as a unit. I'd love to know, like, what are your all thoughts on defunding police system? And um, So I made this infographic on my Instagram about what defunding the police really means. And from what I had researched, basically no one's saying that just like abolish police. There's a there's a small group, but it, it's not realistic to do that. Right. M majority of people are saying defund the police in the sense that um, lower their funding and put it into community expenditures. Um, because what has been happening for a long time is the fact that uh, police is funded more for, to do proactive policing, which means they'll constantly patrol the areas, especially like you go around the neighborhoods and they will say neighborhood watch or whatnot. And right. those are the low, usually in most cases, those are low income areas where police spend most of their time patrolling. And even for the tiniest amount of like, you know, crimes, petty crimes, they'll arrest them and they'll put them in jail. Um, and then they get the three strikes, even for the small crimes. And after the three strikes, they get incarcerated for life. And a lot of times, I mean, this is, pure economics, like if you live in a low-income area and resources are, uh, you know, resources not, are not abundant, you're bound to do something out of just the need of 
feeding your family or doing something um, out of necessity. And then they would consider that as like, and you're not being subordinate or insubordination and they'll okay. put you under. So I think as far as that goes, um, there needs to be more community funding, which helps like, which helps homelessness or which helps like create community centers that educate people or have like places for people to express themselves without having to bottle it up until it gets to a point where they feel like the only way they can ex express themselves is by protesting or rioting. Right. No, I think that's very powerful because especially a lot of things that are, that are going on right now, I think there needs to be more evaluation when it comes to hiring a police officer. And I think that's not only just physical, but also mental evaluations. And I think to address all of these issues and to address all of these things, I think a lot of the funding should go into mental health, especially for you know police officers, but just in general education. At least I'm not too sure what's going on right now, but I think there needs to be a huge dialogue as to why these protestings, protesting is happening, right? And even to the next step, just funding where it should be within the system and then making it, I wouldn't say harder to become a police officer, but at least, um, I, I do think there needs to be a little bit of a change in, in that regard. Yeah, it should be more rigorous because if they're the ones who are allowed to wield guns and yeah. are supposed to protect us, you know, of course, I think it definitely should be rigorous. And I can't say that I've looked through the manual or the hiring process to be a police officer, but from what I hear, it's a lot easier here than it is in other places. Absolutely. And um, to what you guys were saying that, yeah, if, you, if they're going to be more police officers in a certain neighborhood, there's going to be more crime because there's a higher case of reporting. There are more people out there to pick on crimes. I would venture to bet that if there were the same amount of police officers in a suburban area that was well-to-do, they'd probably find a lot of crimes as well. But it's because there's higher presence, then there's going to be higher reporting. So it's kind of skewed in that sense too. And uh, to your point about what defunding the police means to me, um, I really liked how someone put it. Uh, this was also on Patriot Act when Hassan Minaj uh, talked to, I believe, the district attorney um, in Missouri. And uh, he said that, like, I think of it as refunding the community. And I think that's something I can get behind. Um, I mean, I agree with defunding the police, but I think you know, just reframing it in another way, not, um, I think Anandi and I were talking about this at one point that it's a lot of the terminology, it matters because if you, by saying defunding the police, you're immediately making them the enemy. In a lot of cases they can be, absolutely, but you're already stopping the dialogue or you're creating a really negative dialogue with them. Whereas if there was like more coming together understanding of the sides, everyone would have buy-in for because who doesn't want to fund the community? But if you say defund the police, then a police person, I mean, they feel attacked, right? And at this point, we don't need to be making more enemies out of each other. We need to, you know, kind of get on the same page. So I, I like to think of it as refunding the community. I 100% agree. And I think a lot of it is like, you know, uh, ex exactly what you said. I don't think the dialogue should be like, hey, we don't like police or we don't like the system. It's more of like, hey, let's acknowledge that this is happening. Please acknowledge it. And that's right. defunding it. It's not like, hey, we want to shut you down. So, you know, but it's more of like acknowledge these racial injustices because it exists. Privilege exists. I think that terminology is very important, especially when we're addressing these very hot topics that haven't been addressed ever before. And so it's a learning curve for everyone in America, right? Um, I would say 
to the terminology point. Um, when it all started happening after George Floyd's murder, people were obviously like, you know, they were mad and they were angry. And so when they started off the protest, it was very heavy handed. They were angry, obviously. So they just created these terminologies out of anger. But then, so if you look at Seattle's uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, it, it started off as CHAZ, which was Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And in doing so, they created this third world country, basically, in that three street area. And they put up barricades. Uh, police weren't allowed. Hospital, like ambulances weren't allowed. There were more violence in that area over the span of past three weeks than there ever has been. Um, but then once they learned, like, you know, how to be more diplomatic, per se. Um, they changed the name to CHOP. So it changed from Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which literally means that, like, we're not going to let government in mm-hmm. to Capitol Hill uh, organized protests to make it more palatable, I guess. Because what ended up happening was there would be violence and people were open carrying guns in that area. There were mm-hmm. shootings, but ambulances weren't allowed in. So people would just die because like, there was no government help. There was basically, it, it, for, the, for the span of past three weeks, that, that area became not a part of the United States. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that, like, that was the degree to it, that it's actually not even the U.S. Yeah, that's why they call it the autonomous zone, because it's technically it did not exist in the United States at that point. I think perhaps that the solution may come from a policy similar to this idea of defunding the police and refunding the community. But I think that if that's done, I think it should be oriented so that the interface between police and the community is not less, mm-hmm. but more. And I think right. that, I think the reason for that is that the, the lower the percentage of interactions between police and their citizenry, low, the lower the percentage of those interactions that are aggressive or violent or punitive, the better the community's kind of cohesiveness is. And so what you can, you can do a number of things with that. You can actually decrease crime or you can just increase the number of interactions that would accomplish the same math. And so I think what we can do, this is sounds great in theory. I'm not a, I'm not a policymaker, but it sounds great is to divert funding from things like how much we're patrolling, let's say, or how much we're purchasing in terms of ammunition, these kind of things. Um, conceptually into something more like police uh, engage in community events, community organized events in like the town hall or after school programs and actually have police there. That's the important part is that, you know, this is not a cop. This is a guy's name is Robert. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is not just a, a black kid. His name is Clifford or whatever, you know, like if you know these things, you're much more likely to interact better when it comes down to the, to the disagreement. Right. Let's broaden our, our interface to include healthy interactions that are not limited to the crises. And so I don't see it as outlandish at all. I was talking to you know, Audrey about this weeks ago that what we need to have is barbecues. You know? okay. We need to have just community barbecues organized by police. People can just come and eat and hang out and talk, make burgers, talk about the Joe Rogan podcast that they all listen to. You know, It's like, we have a lot in common, right? And I think that's what I'm afraid of is that this events, obviously they're tearing us apart in, in the obvious ways, but even when we're intending ourselves in the best possible way, I think we're putting more distance between us and, and black people. We're capitalizing letter B, all these things that it's like, it just, 
these things are good in microcosm, but I think what it might do is distance them from us and, and where it really matters is, uh, and, and that's when we're breaking bread and when we're actually talking about what we all have in common. And I mean, it's a paradox I've been trying to think about, it's like getting educated about what makes them different while also maintaining that the most important thing is to realize that we're the same. Um, I'll give you anecdotal evidence. I mean, I live yeah. in a very small town, mm. um, right, like right outside Baltimore. I live in a very small town and the, the sheriff basically goes on around to talk to the community every now and then. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say like, he practically knows everyone in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you know, this is not a political issue after all, like he's Republican. We all know he's Republican, but even to that point, like he's human at, at, at the end of the day, like he, because he is so interactive with the community, if something were to happen, he would know that person or that area and whoever the people are deployed to that area would understand that community more if uh, compared to if they were to just like go and do their job. If they were to just go and make peace, then they would do it by any means. But if they knew the community, then they would approach it differently. Like um, if they knew all oh, these people, they're good people, but something might, must have happened, they might have approached it differently. I uh. think uh, Jintan building on that, it, it's, and Anand also the idea of um, community involvement and being you personally being involved in your community and also uh, the police being more involved within the community as well. So it's, it's kind of a give and take in that conversation because I think it's very easy to make assumptions about what they might be thinking or how they're trained and um, how they're trained to react to these situations. But when you talk to somebody, whether they're black, whether they're part of the police, whether they're Indian, whether they're a doctor, whether they're a teacher, we have all these biases already within us that we bring to the conversation. And when you know someone personally on that level, it cuts those biases down because it, it humanizes them instead of them just being recognized as a police officer or a teacher or a doctor. I agree. I think you're in on top of that. Like, I mean, biases and stereotypes are just ways to make someone not human, right? So whenever you take out that, that level of who, like what they are and, and see for who they are, it changes everything, right? It adds emotional attachment. One of my best friends, her husband is a police officer um, in Canada. And she said that it is very difficult to be on one side of the conversation yeah. when the entire country is on the other side sure. right? yeah. so it's really hard to to say hey i'm on your side um when you have to go to work every day and you're wearing your um, rcmp or police gear oh yeah for sure i was just gonna add on before was that a lot of times people that become police officers like there's a reason why right it's like it's the same reason why some of us want to be doctors why want to be engineers or want to be it's because there's a passion or in this case, uh, a drive to help the city, a drive to help us as a nation, right? The way uh, policing started in the United States is something that has to be discussed. And I think you have to look in the past as to how we got to this level of policing in America because policing started as a slave patrol. So the, the idea of policing in America has always been to make people fall in line basically like mm -hmm. th that has always been their job and this is not the same in every um country um you know policing in, in in its at its core should be to help the community but 
and and many many police uh, agencies have that same idea, but then at the same time, the fundamental is wrong, flawed, and that's why the term defund the police comes around because they mm -hmm. want to rebuild the police system with a the core ideal that matches with what police should be doing, which is to help the community. It came from a place of, okay, well, you know, let's get as many criminals away as we can, crack down on crime. But if we come from a place of, let's just try not to have, make criminals in the first place. Let's have services that, like you said, that don't have to drive them to such a desperate measures. Then, then you really reframe the whole fundamental concept of policing. And so let's look into what their needs are. So coming from a supportive place rather than identify what's wrong and take you out of there, let's identify what's wrong and give you the support you need. We not only like rebrand something like defund the police, but actually actually consider that the best way out of this is actually to realize that police are the answers to this problem. It's like, how can we use that role in society? The protector, the sworn protector. It's actually a very noble role, you know. If they're sworn into that job, what matters is for us to redefine what protection means in these communities, right? I hope that in, in the wake of all this, police aren't, as a whole, they're not maligned, you know, because mm -hmm. that would be a really tragic thing. And just as it's a really tragic thing that because of stereotypes cops have or white people have or we have as a community against African-Americans, because of these stereotypes, we paint all African-Americans a certain way. It'd be very, it'd be very, I think, a poor response to paint all cops or even most cops a certain way based on the actions of one criminal, you know? The only issue is that it's not just one, it's, it's so many. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it comes down to, like, it's such a fundamental issue, like at its root, at its root, it's become something kind of corrupted or kind of dark. The heroics of cops um, mixed with the brutality that's gone with them, it creates a really dangerous mix to, to attract only those people who are attracted to brutality. And then only these things are gonna keep on happening. But if it does attract the people who do wanna do good and who do wanna be with the community, the sheriff, the chiefs who are in your communities, then, then it would only strengthen that social contract that we have with each other, that we're supposed to protect and look out for each other. I was going to kind of change the topic that since you brought up stereotypes um, and talking about, you know, how we as, uh, as Americans, as Desis, uh, also kind of perpetuate or hold those stereotypes about African-Americans um, or Black people. Um, you know, I just love to hear, like, anyone's experience with that. You know, have you seen that changing in your family, in your circle? Um, do you still see those stereotypes being perpetuated or anything? When I when I try to bring it up to my uncle who has been here for over fifty years, um, he gives me the the reasoning that like oh this is the price that you have to pay for assimilation or freedom or mm -hmm. success or whatever, um, and I have to ask him like why do you think that we have to be okay with it like at at what point are are we going to stand up for the rights that we deserve? A lot of brown people don't come up or they don't stand up for these things because they just consider it as like, oh, this is something that I have to deal with. Like they might, they might get- That's a super good point, Shinton. That's a really yeah, good point. I think, um, let's say like a gas station owner, they, they get, you know, cussed at for their English or whatever, whatever they might go through, they just might scope it off and like, oh, at least I'm an American. At least I'm making mm -hmm. They don't really think about the overall 
overarching problem. I think there's this fear of rocking the boat, mm -hmm. bringing in too much of into the conversation, um, which is probably the narrative I hear the most among my in-laws and my parents feel like they're okay with being in the background. You know, within the American society, they're okay with assimilating to the norm that is, and they're okay to accept that. And I think that's where the South Asian youth, they come into the conversation because from birth, they're seeing this, mm -hmm. you know, so they have accepted that this is their society and they have a role in this. They're okay with speaking up and standing up and we can have these conversations. But after the conversation, what is our role here, right? Like we can say like, okay, defund the police. Whose role is that? Who's making these policies? Um, and then where does our role come in? Are we, where do we get the chance to speak up within the community? Um, is it just in our home? Is it within our community? Do we know somebody we can speak to? Do we call the local politicians? Um, do we attend the protests? What motion does that have? I think that that is a really important thing that the youths <laughs> are learning now is how to actually make that change and not just have this conversation between me and you, but actually be able to make that change because it comes from us. We are part of this community. It's not just the policymakers. It's not just who we vote in. It's our voices that need to be elevated. And as a collective, we are part of that voice that needs to be out there saying these things. This came up on the Hassan Manesh segment with the district attorney as well, where he asked a question that I I often ask myself is, do these calls to governors and politicians actually do anything? Does it just go to voicemail? Does someone, is there an intern deleting all these? Um, right. But he said that, no, that it actually does matter. Um, that if there are enough calls about something, then it'll make politicians pay attention that, okay, this is an issue, I need to get on it. Um, the reason why uh, certain issues get, or certain radical issues come up is because it's people who with these strong opinions, who have opinions strong enough to call their politicians, then that's what they hear. It's just getting out on like all types of whatever platforms out there, whether it's petitions, whether it's calls. I've been signing the petitions, but I haven't gotten on the phone call yet, but I will. Yeah, Jensen's point about how we won't really fight for someone else's voice unless we really feel like our voice is worth fighting for. And I think that there's something about being South Asian and at least being a first generation, like I was born in India, right? So I still carry with me this fact that kind of what I have to do is fit in or kind of just like be as much as, be as, as similar as possible. I mean, I, it's, I don't have to go back very long in my life to think, boy, it would be embarrassing if I opened this food at a table. You know? <laughs> and that's something that I think that attitude is like, it just translates to, all right, guys, guys, don't make, don't make such a ruckus. Let's, let's be quiet, you know? Like, let's, let's, not give every, let's not give it away that we don't belong here. Right. Yeah, no, like Shintani, like you said that, that your uncle was talking about assimilation, no freedom. And those things are seen as the same thing that mm -hmm. by assimilating, that's how you get freedom. And that's really unfortunate. And I think, yeah, like Karen is saying that this generation is, we're realizing that's not the case. Assimilation is actually oppression. Um, that it, it's not just like a ticket to just live and coast by. We have to continue that. I mean, like what better way to, to operate than keeping minorities against each other, right? So if we see, you know, oh, it's black people, African-American problem, or we also come to see them as troublesome in some kind of way, 
then the oppressors win, then the colonizers win, right? Because now we're pitting against each other. So if you keep us divided, we're gonna be a lot weaker that way. And I think that's how the mi model minority becomes problematic. Yeah, I think um, that's where that's where the idea of model minority myth comes in, right? Like we we were allowed in this country to show uh, the African American community that look, this is what you're supposed to be like. This is like you know, keep your head down, just do your thing, and uh, you'll be successful too. Like you you get to live a happy life too. Don't ask for your rights. Don't ask for equality. As long as you are like them, then you're okay. Um, and I think that's where we have like our, our role comes in that we have to tell our parents or the immigrants that, listen, what happened to you or what you went through and you just like kept your head down, that was not okay. You should have pointed it out and you should still, there's still time for you to acknowledge that what happened was wrong and that happened to you, but this is still happening to our black brothers and sisters. Like, you know, you should have raised your voice at that time. You didn't, but that's okay. You you still have time to help them come to the equality that everyone else should have. I don't. I don't really think about my parents as real perpetrators here. I think that they had a lot to deal with in coming here. You know, like they yeah. they, they didn't even see a black person until they landed here. And I think to me, it's like the fact that they voted for Obama is awesome enough. Okay, so we are all minorities, right? I mean, in a way, but we suffer from stereotypes like, oh, maybe I smell, maybe I am smart at math, you know, but they suffer stereotypes like maybe I'm dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that's different because what they'll do, they'll make me do the whole project in fifth grade. They'll kill him. That's different. I don't, I don't know about the, the interface between South Asian problems and, and American problems. Um, I think that falls in, it falls at the feet of, of South Asian Americans, basically us, you know, rather than anyone who came before us. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think that our parents are perpetrators by any means. They were just trying to survive. Like they were just trying to get through. Yeah. I think the word that comes to mind for me is ignorance, mm -hmm. not in a bad way, just as the definition portrays ignorance, the lack of education, and that can only be beat by having these conversations with them and, and educating them on what exactly led to these motions, the protests, police brutality. I would say I've been in the US for about four years now. Before that, I was in Canada, born and raised. So for us, the conversation wasn't usually about Black people. It was more about Native Americans you know, and, and their role in society and the biases that come with that. And my mom is an RN, so she sees a lot of what goes on within the community um, in our very small and rural community. Maybe two years ago, they made her do this sensitivity training where she learned all about the history of Native Americans. And before that, 20 odd years, she's been a nurse. She never quite understood the anger, you know, the narrative behind some of the conversations within politics. She never fully understood that until she took that training. And I thought it's so important to learn that. I get the notion of assimilating and just being in the background and not wanting to, again, rock the boat. Um, it's so important to, to get out there and learn about why this is happening within your community. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, actually, you don't have to stretch very hard to see, if you're a South Asian, to see what African-Americans in this country are suffering. Because 
we're so torn up. Well, like the movie Lagan is such a beautiful film because we, we still feel like we're a part of that oppression, you know, and yeah. the fight against that oppression. And if just replace the people in the film, that's what's, that's kind yeah. of what happens throughout history with various populations, but it happened here too, you know? Mm-hmm. And whenever you see Indians who are conservative in India and fight against uh, oppression in yesteryear and here are suddenly, you know, a, a different kind of person. I think what that comes from is just, yeah, for one, not knowing the history of people here, but also not knowing the people themselves. Like the history is one thing and then the people are different, right? And I think, honestly, I think that someone like the former president, Barack Obama, was so important for how minorities who don't normally interface with African-Americans see them. Mm-hmm. People, like, people like him, people like Oprah, people who are basically universally liked, if not universally agreed with. And I think we know this narratively, like all our films that are about race relations, that are about like that football movie, The Titans, it's like they make friends and then they, then they win, you know? And then there's that movie, The Green Book, they make friends and then they, you know, and it's always about that friendship. And I think like, so that happens with us. We have sensitivity training in our, in our work as well. And I think what that does is it's, it's the seed and then we go out there and we look at someone who's different than us. We think, okay, I know what they've been through. I know what his grandmother has been through at least. And then, and then you make a friendship with them. And then that, that's actually the spark. I'm so grateful that uh, after all this has happened, I think people, some people are coming out and actually they're having, there's actually a, a YouTube channel, Conversations with the Black Man. I think this is exactly the oh, Uncomfortable of, Conversations with the Black Man, right? Uncomfortable Conversations yeah. with the Black Man, correct, yeah. It's an important word, yeah. And mm-hmm. um. And the idea is that they are, what's actually, it's a, it's a good word for it because they're actually super comfortable. That's what's beautiful about it is that he helps people find him, you know, among all the different presuppositions they may have. It's like, no, 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 I'm in here. You know, it's like you're waiting through a forest of misconception. And he says, no, no, I'm here. And we find him, right? And that's what he's doing. That's what the uncomfortable conversation is. And I, I, uh, I, I'm super grateful that's happening in the wake of all these uh, kind of uh, arguments and riots and, and kind of demonization. I, I just want to see much more of that. Yeah, and I think like it, it's great that those things are happening. Just, uh, Gintip, I think you mentioned a while ago that like, you know, why, not sure why is it now? Why was it George Floyd's murder that sparked all of this, this moment where it feels like we can't turn back to how things used to be anymore. Like this feels like a real tipping point and I just regret that it had to happen all these years later. There were so many names, so many lives that had to be lost somehow, and that it only took until now for some reason for this um, for this flint to spark. But I think at the end of the day, um, what what we all need to do is continue to have these conversations. Uncomfortable it may be, but we have to continue to have these conversations for us to continue to educate ourselves and make sure that these things don't repeat themselves or how we can help make sure that these things don't repeat themselves. Right, because a lot of people have been way more uncomfortable for way longer and and we're only now catching up to it. I mean, I think, you know, African-Americans, Black people, other oppressed people, they've been around like we've, we've been here, we've been yelling, we've been screaming, we've been fighting, even protesting and nothing's happened. Um, And so, yeah, I'm definitely grateful for those who are open to 
educating us who are unaware. Um, it's not everyone's job to educate because they've been living through their experience, but really grateful for those who, um, who opened themselves up to that. It's really unfortunate that Black people have seemed to just been at the bottom of the totem pole around the world, unfortunately. And what really woke me up to that was someone saying that, you know, how would I feel if someone told me that my child wasn't good enough for their kid? Um, or how, what if someone told me that I wasn't good enough for their kid? And I, I don't know, something about this just like completely just like blew my mind. I was like, yeah, of course. Then it makes absolutely no sense. And I think that level of empathy, of empathy needs to be brought like in every kind of interaction that we're having. I don't think that it was as much as like, oh, black people are bad, but it's like, oh, white people are good. So, right. you know, right away, like that just, I mean, this is not like a African-American issue. Even in India, like if you're naturally darker, you have a hard time getting up in life. Well, I think it was a great talk, guys. Um, mm -hmm. I actually learned a whole lot from what you guys have seen and read. And I appreciate you guys for uh, being so open and honest. It takes a lot to, you know, talk about something that we're implicated in. You know, I guess we need to do more of this as often as possible, right? And we can commit ourselves to that here. We should do this again, for sure. This is a great Absolutely. medium. And if the audience likes it, let's keep it going. We'll keep talking about other stuff, right? What do you guys yes. think? Yes. All right, Chintan, thanks for organizing this. And goodbye, folks. Randip's idea. Thanks for listening. Bye, friends. <laughs>